Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, January 17th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. Donald Trump wins big in the Iowa caucuses. Vivek Ramaswamy drops out of the GOP race. Iran strikes an alleged Israeli spy base in Iraq. Arab nations express caution over rebuilding Gaza. Nauru cuts ties with Taiwan. Zelensky visits Davos to garner support. Elon Musk requests a bigger stake in Tesla. The Biden campaign raises $97 million in Q4 2023. Global tobacco use declines. And a study finds having more siblings negatively impacts mental health. Trump sees a record win in the Iowa caucus. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Republican Party of Iowa, the Associated Press, CBS, and the Des Moines Register. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has won the Republican Party's 2024 Iowa caucus, receiving over 56,000 votes, 51 percent, compared to the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at approximately 23,000 votes, or 21.2 percent, and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley's more than 21,000 votes, or 19.1 percent. Vivek Ramaswamy received over 8,000 votes, 7.7 percent, compared to Ryan Binkley's 774 votes, 0.7 percent, Asa Hutchinson's 191 votes, 0.2 percent, and Chris Christie's 35 votes, less than 0.1 percent. Following Ramaswamy's fourth-place finish, the entrepreneur pulled out of the race for the GOP's presidential nomination and put his support behind Trump. The approximately 30% margin of victory for Trump is a record for an Iowa Republican caucus, previously held by Bob Dole's 13% victory in 1988. In proportion to these results, Trump, DeSantis, and Haley are projected to receive 20 eight, and seven delegates, respectively, from Iowa's nearly 40 delegates. Out of the 2,429 delegates available nationwide, at least 1,215 are required to win the party's presidential candidacy. Speaking to supporters at his watch party in Des Moines, Iowa, following his victory, Trump claimed that America had to come together, while stating that DeSantis and Haley did very well and are very smart and very capable people. The former president also congratulated Ramaswamy for what he described as a hell of a job during the campaign. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Melissa brought us the facts. And now for our first narrative, a pro-Trump spin from Breitbart. While the first half of 2023 suggested a tight race in Iowa, an exceptionally strong campaign by Trump and his team has resulted in a historic and record-breaking result for the state. As the DeSantis and Haley campaigns continue to flounder, The former president has stayed away from the GOP's string of pointless debates while maintaining a strong and simple message. Trump has dodged every possible Democrat bullet and continues to gather momentum as he eyes a return to the White House. Here's the anti-Trump narrative from USA Today. Despite being a state known for its religious affiliations, it is the cult of Trumpism that dangerously threatens U.S. democracy following Iowa's caucus results. As history has shown, however, this outcome, while undoubtedly a victory for Trump, doesn't mean he'll secure the presidential nomination. Faced with the trove of criminal charges and stiff competition from Haley in New Hampshire's primary, the U.S. hasn't yet fallen for Trump's brand of authoritarianism. 
And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction Community. They predict a 94% chance that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Now, in 2016, Trump did not win the Iowa caucus. Ted mm. Cruz did. He came in second. But uh, so, it, you know, this doesn't mean it's over, but it's a, it's a very different world than it was in 2016. Right. I have multiple times had a dream where Trump is trying to win me over. He's like, ah, come on, I need you. Isn't that weird? It would be pretty fun to have. I mean, the dream is someone's phone rings and it's like, oh, it's Steve Martin again. Ignore. Like, geez. Like, just, <laughs> it'd be fun to have these people fawning over you. Like, I think you might enjoy Trump trying to win you over. Well, he's I mean, I'm not going to say he's a good actor, but he's he, he knows how to turn charisma on for people he wants to. Right? I Come suspect with me. his charisma to try to convince you to get on board would look different than the charisma that he shows in general. I'm not sure what he would do to try to get on your good side. We wouldn't try to make Melissa great again. And in more GOP primary news, Ramaswamy drops out of the race and endorses Trump. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, and ABC News. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy on Monday ended his bid for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination after a disappointing showing at the Iowa caucuses. Announcing the suspension of his campaign, Ramaswamy said he saw no path to the nomination. Ramaswamy's announcement came after former President Donald Trump cemented his place as the GOP frontrunner by securing 20 of the 40 delegates. Ramaswamy came in fourth after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, formerly the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. 38-year-old Ramaswamy, born in Ohio to parents who migrated from southern India, was best known for his book, Woke Inc., which criticized firms which made business decisions around social justice and climate change concerns. The Harvard graduate also made millions as a biotech executive and entrepreneur. During his presidential campaign, Ramaswamy was an outspoken defender of Trump, often criticizing the criminal complaints against him. However, in the final days of the campaign, Trump turned on the newcomer, labeling Ramaswamy a fraud and saying that a vote for him was a vote for the other side. Nonetheless, Ramaswamy on Monday reasserted his support for Trump, saying the former president has his full endorsement. Ramaswamy was scheduled to make a campaign appearance with Trump on Tuesday. Also on Monday, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson dropped out of the race after finishing in sixth place in Iowa. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll start with a Republican narrative from Fox News. Ramaswamy made a valiant effort as he started his campaign with little name recognition and outlasted several better-known candidates. He put up a fight and visits to every Iowa county and brought some important issues to the forefront of the race while building his campaign on truth-telling. By leaving the race and endorsing Trump, he's continuing to do what's best for the Republican Party's future unity and electoral chances. And MSNBC counters with a Democratic narrative. Ramaswamy never really ran against Trump as much as he ran alongside him, seemingly auditioning for a cabinet position along the way. This campaign accomplished two things. It made Ramaswamy famous, and it proved that the Republican electorate has a hunger for Trump to shift his terrifying policies even further to the right. Iran claims to strike an Israeli spy base in Iraq. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Associated Press, CNN, NDTV, and the Financial Times. 
On Monday, Iran struck what it claimed to be a base for Israel's intelligence agency, Mossad, along with other locations allegedly hosting Iranian opposition groups in Erbil, the capital of the semi-autonomous Kurdistan region in northern Iraq. Baghdad recalled its ambassador to Tehran in response on Tuesday. Four civilians were killed and six injured, according to the Kurdish regional government, as the ballistic missiles struck what Iran called Israel's spy headquarters for the region, located near the U.S. consulate. Iraq's foreign minister, Fuad Hussein, however, has denied that Erbil hosts any Mossad-associated centers. Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps also claimed to have struck Islamic State bases in Syria in response to the IS-claimed twin blast that killed nearly 100 at a ceremony commemorating former Iranian general Qasem Soleimani in Kerman earlier this month. Iran's missile strikes come amid widespread regional tensions following Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel and Tel Aviv's subsequent Gaza bombardment, with a series of attacks also conducted by Israel and the U.S. against Hamas, Iraqi militia leaders, and Yemen Houthi rebels. Thanks, Melissa. We have an anti-Iran narrative from The New York Times. Iran is stirring up more trouble in an already explosive region. A more unstable Iraq is the last thing the Middle East needs at this point, making the strikes on Erbil an utterly reckless act. Tehran must respect the sovereignty of Iraq and allow peace to return to the region. And here's the pro-Iran narrative from the Islamic Republic News Agency. Contrary to claims from the West, Iran isn't the one inflaming tensions in the region. Monday's strikes, which abided by international laws, are a direct response to terrorist actions committed against Iran which not only has a right, but a duty to defend its civilians. And a nerd narrative from Attaculus, there's a 22% chance that a state-based conflict between Iran and Israel will cause at least 1,000 deaths before 2025. Blinken claims Arab nations are cautious on rebuilding Gaza if it's leveled again. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al-Arabia Jewish Insider, The Times of Israel, The National, and Voice of America. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said on Tuesday that Arab nations aren't keen to finance rebuilding Gaza after the war if it will be leveled again in a few years, stressing the importance of establishing a Palestinian state in any regional settlement. He emphasized that Israel's security depended on normalization with Arab states and resolving the conflict with Palestinians. Saudi Arabia's foreign minister said the kingdom could recognize Israel as a part of the comprehensive agreement that included a Palestinian state. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, also present at Davos, said that Hamas's October 7th attack hadn't fundamentally changed the Biden administration's approach to the Middle East. He claimed that the goal of the attack was to derail normalization talks between Israel and Arab states, namely Saudi Arabia. He said that the war in Gaza was on a path of escalation and the U.S. seeks de-escalation and diplomacy. Israeli media reported on Monday that the country's military chief, Herzi Halevi, told Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that Israel risks squandering its military gains in Gaza because no strategy has been put together for the day after. Halevi said that the end of Israel's military campaign must be anchored in policy, warning that the military would have to return to areas where fighting has concluded. Internal Israeli discussions regarding Gaza's post-war governance have reportedly been complicated by infighting within the security cabinet. On Tuesday, a volley of rockets were fired from central Gaza into Israel. Israeli forces, specifically the 36th Division, 
had been operating in central Gaza, though they did not consider the area under their operational control, but pulled out as part of an announced withdrawal. Other Israeli divisions are still present in central Gaza, where intense fighting continues. Senior Hamas official in Lebanon, Osama Hamdan, said in an interview published on Tuesday that Hamas viewed the various plans floated by the U.S. and Israel as unacceptable, claiming that Hamas was holding talks with various Palestinian factions to establish a new administration in Gaza after the war. Hamdan said that all Palestinian factions agree that the form of the next phrase is a Palestinian national decision, though he did not provide details. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 24,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thank you, Scott, for those facts, and we'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from Politico. The U.S. is doing everything it can to both ensure that Israel can eliminate Hamas's military capabilities and prevent regional escalation. Israel must be able to defend itself from terrorist attacks, whether from Gaza or elsewhere, and is taking the right steps to wind down its military operations in Gaza. As it is not the U.S. or Israel's best interest to see the conflict escalate. Nevertheless, the U.S. is prepared to defend its allies in the region and deter threats to regional and global security. Jerusalem Post brings us the pro Israel narrative. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel must eliminate Hamas and restore deterrence with Iran and its proxy, Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a terrorist army with far greater military capabilities than Hamas, and Israel cannot allow its citizens residing in the north to live under the constant threat of terrorist attacks. The UN resolution that ended the 2006 war with Hezbollah has failed to ensure Israel's security, and if some sort of new arrangement is not made, Israel will be forced to intervene. Likewise, in Gaza, Hamas's military capabilities must be eliminated to ensure Israel's security. Here's a pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Eye. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas or Hezbollah, but against the Palestinian and Lebanese people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Israel is killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate and clearly wants to make the Gaza Strip unlivable. Though the U.S., Israel's biggest ally, wants to minimize the war's intensity, it must instead exert more pressure to end the war completely. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 64% chance that Israel will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. Uru cuts Taiwan ties and aligns with Beijing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, DPA, Reuters, Al Jazeera, Barron's, and the South China Morning Post. Nauru, a Pacific island nation in Micronesia, cut diplomatic ties with Taiwan on Monday and aligned with Beijing only days after Taiwan's presidential election. According to some observers, the move was not a surprise. Nauru stated it was re-establishing diplomatic ties with China, moving away from Taiwan, and no longer considering Taiwan as a separate country, but rather as an inalienable part of China's territory. Taiwan's Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, Tin Chung Kuang, accused Beijing of influencing Nauru and demanded the immediate closure of Nauru's embassy in Taiwan. Nauru's government said in an official statement that the decision to abandon Taipei in favor of Beijing 
was in line with the United Nations Resolution 2758, which recognizes the PRC as the exclusive representative of China in the international organization. The head of the U.S. delegation that manages informal relations with Taiwan, Laura Rosenberger, called Nauru's decision to cut diplomatic ties with Taiwan unfortunate and disappointing. Rosenberger added, the PRC often makes promises in exchange for diplomatic relations that ultimately remain unfulfilled. China's foreign ministry welcomed Nauru's decision to open bilateral relations with Beijing under the One China policy. The ministry spokeswoman also responded to Washington's claims, calling them irresponsible. It's not the first time Nauru has broken off diplomatic ties with Taiwan. Taiwan began diplomatic relations with Nauru in 1980, but Nauru transferred recognition to Beijing in July 2002. However, when China failed to fulfill its promises to assist the island, Nauru reestablished its relationship with Taiwan in 2005. Those were the facts, and here's the anti-China narrative from Voice of America. Simply put, Beijing offered a better deal than Taipei and bought off the financially strained South Pacific nation to shift diplomatic sides once again. The move was a calculated attempt to undermine Taiwan's independence and democracy and diplomatically isolate the island. At the end of the day, Taiwan will appear stronger because Beijing's cynical attempt to lure Taiwan's diplomatic allies to its side will be perceived as bullying. And a pro-China narrative from Global Times. Only a few nations have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Most countries, including the U.S., support the One China policy, rather than recognizing Taiwan as an independent state. With Nauru removed from the list, Taiwan's diplomatic friends are decreasing. Given the PRC's position in the world, any sovereign state should seek improved relations with Beijing rather than caving to U.S.-led hegemony. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 4% chance China will recognize the sovereignty of Taiwan by 2050. I got to go on vacation. It's bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't really care what kind of diplomatic relations the place I go has as long as it has little... Umbrellas and its drinks. That's a problem. That's a, yeah. I'd like to like read a book in the sun and drink a drink and then like go in the pool when I get too hot and then come out when I get too cold. Like that's the plan. That sounds great. Zelensky visits the World Economic Forum to garner support. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, President Zelensky's website, Fox News, The Moscow Times, Al Jazeera, and Euromaiden Press. Speaking at the World Economic Forum conference in Davos, Switzerland on Tuesday, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky claimed his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, bodies war. He also claimed to have received positive signals from the EU regarding financial support, adding that he hopes the U.S. will also pledge further assistance in the coming weeks. Zelensky also held a CEOs for Ukraine meeting, where he announced his country's GDP exceeded 5% last year, touted Kyiv's defense of the Black Sea, and increased grain production. The meeting included European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg, and U.S. Secretary Representative for Ukraine's Economic Recovery, Penny Pritzker, among others. Zelensky also met with bankers and investors, including J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, Ray Dallow of Bridgewater Associates, Blackstone CEO Steve Schwartzman, and Philip Hildebrand of BlackRock. J.P. Morgan and BlackRock are serving as Ukraine's financial advisors as it attempts to obtain investments, though the industry has invested little as the war continues. 
In Moscow, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov met with his North Korean counterpart Cho Sun-hui on Tuesday, where Lavrov said he appreciates Pyongyang's support of Russia's position, including on matters related to our special military operation in Ukraine. Ukrainian allies, including the U.S., have accused Moscow of using North Korean weapons against Ukraine. At Davos, Zelensky called on the West to help it become superior to Russia in terms of air warfare, similar to how Kyiv gained superiority in the Black Sea. Meanwhile, Putin said it would be impossible for Ukraine to strip Russia of the gains it has made in war. He also rejected the possibility of peace talks, accusing Kyiv of using prohibitive formulas for the peace process. This comes as Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kalas reportedly said that NATO has three to five years to prepare for a conflict with Russia in the bloc's east. She argued that the potential for direct Russia-NATO military conflict highlights the need for the bloc to remain united in supporting Ukraine. Thank you, Scott. Here's the anti-Russia narrative from Radio Free Europe. The Davos consensus on Ukraine should be the world's consensus. Kyiv is absolutely capable of deterring and defeating Moscow, so long as its Western allies continue their financial support. This can't just be verbal or metaphorical support either, but rather concrete and predictable finance and weapons distribution to the front lines until Putin finally concedes his inevitable defeat. And the pro-Russian narrative from RT. Russian officials didn't have to attend the Davos summit to understand the absurdity of its intentions. Dozens of national security advisors flew to Switzerland to hear Zelensky call for a complete withdrawal of Russian troops and for subsequent trials for war crimes. Propositions even the most pro-Ukraine countries know are not going to happen. What will happen is Ukraine will continue to lose on the battlefield as its allies in the West grow more weary of supporting this war. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 30% chance that Russia will have significantly expanded its controlled territory in Ukraine on January 1st, 2026. Well, who do you think benefits more, Zelensky for being at the forum or the forum for Zelensky coming to the forum? Oh, that's a scratching each other's back situation, isn't it? Yeah, maybe just it's symbiotic. Yeah, it's yeah. both. Elon Musk asks for more Tesla shares to grow the company's AI. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNBC, Fox News, The New York Times, Bloomberg, and The New York Post. Tesla founder Elon Musk on Monday said that he would need a larger stake in the electric vehicle company to feel comfortable growing the business, quote, to be a leader in AI and robotics noting that he seeks 25% voting control of Tesla. The Tesla and SpaceX CEO voiced his request on social media network X, formerly Twitter, which he bought in 2022 after selling tens of billions of dollars of his Tesla shares. Musk currently owns 13% of Tesla, roughly $411 million out of the company's $3.19 billion outstanding shares. Musk said that 25% of voting power would make him influential, while noting that he can be overridden if twice as many shareholders vote against me versus for me. He added, at 15% or lower, the for-against ratio to override me makes a takeover by dubious interests too easy. He added that he, quote, would prefer to build products outside of Tesla if he could not get the stake he is seeking. 
Musk didn't mention any specific products, but he may be referencing his work in AI, which includes a separate business called XAI, known for creating the Grok chatbot. The Tesla board's decision to increase Musk's shares will come after a Delaware Chancery Court rules on the independence of a 2018 $55 billion performance award it gave Musk. In a different post on X, Musk proposed a dual-class share structure to gain 25% control, but he was reportedly told that such a structure isn't possible after Tesla's initial public offering. Tesla hasn't responded to Musk's comments. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A on this story comes from ABC News. Elon Musk is holding his own company hostage in order to get his way. Investors have always been wary of Musk's volatile public persona and brash public statements, and his public demand for 25% control of Tesla does nothing to assuage concerns about the Tesla founder. While Tesla has been successful, it has experienced its worst performance since going public, and Musk is overplaying his hand and harming himself and his company. Here's Narrative B from The Observer. Elon Musk is making a very reasonable request in seeking 25% control of the electric vehicle company he founded. Musk is the brains powering Tesla, and he has many plans that can help the company venture into emerging spheres such as AI. Musk has the leverage, and he should not give Tesla exclusive access to his outside work without fair compensation. And there's a nerd narrative on this story. There's a 50% chance that Tesla's market capitalization will be at least $1.58 trillion on January 1st, 2030, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The Biden campaign raises $97 million in Q4 of 2023. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, Spectrum News, New York One, The Hill, USA Today, CNN, and the Associated Press. President Joe Biden's re-election campaign raised over $97 million in the fourth quarter of 2023 and had $117 million in cash heading into 2024, which it claimed was a record for a Democratic presidential candidate. In its announcement on Monday, the president's campaign said it had entered last year's final quarter with $91 million in the vault, fueled by $71 million raised in the third quarter. Most GOP presidential candidates, including frontrunner Donald Trump, have yet to release their fundraising figures for Q4 of 2023. The deadline to submit quarterly financial reports is January 31st. According to the Biden campaign, former Democratic presidential candidates Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton each raised about $67 million in the final quarter of 2011 and 2015, respectively. The Biden campaign held star-studded events with celebrities such as James Taylor, Steven Spielberg, and Barbara Streisand. However, the majority of donations, more than 97%, were grassroots contributions of under $200. Meanwhile, according to a recent ABC News Ipsos poll, President Biden has a 33% approval rating, the lowest figure since that of George Bush between 2006 and 2008. Thank you, Scott. We'll start with a Democratic narrative from Vanity Fair. Despite all the naysayers, President Biden continues to show that he is a political force. The fact that more than 520,000 voters made over 900,000 donations to his fundraising hall and that his campaign raised nearly $100 million in just three months shows the Democratic presidential candidate's support among a plethora of Americans. Meanwhile, Trump has significantly less money and is wasting resources on legal battles and primary fights. All of this bodes well for Biden's 2024 chances. 
The Daily Caller brings us the Republican narrative. All the money in the world can't shield President Biden from the effects of his immense unpopularity. Hollywood elites may be rallying around the incumbent president and his failed policies, but a vast majority of Americans are fed up with record inflation and the surging migrant crisis. While the Biden campaign may claim it has created a fundraising record, it fails to acknowledge how much less that money is worth thanks to inflation. Voters, not donors, will determine the 2024 election. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus that's saying there's a 49 percent chance that Joe Biden will be elected U.S. president in 2024. The World Health Organization reports that global tobacco use is declining. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the World Health Organization, Reuters, CTV News and Bloomberg News. A report released Tuesday by the World Health Organization shows global tobacco use is dropping, as one in five adults reported using tobacco in 2022, down from one in three in 2000. In a statement, the director of the WHO Department of Health Promotion said that it's important to avoid complacency in the face of the progress of curtailing tobacco use, as well as what he deemed efforts by the tobacco industry to pursue profits at the expense of countless lives. One strategy the tobacco industry is using reportedly involves offering financial and in-kind incentives to countries, but the WHO is urging nations to resist these approaches, especially in the run-up to this year's 10th session of the WHO Framework Convention on Tobacco Control Conference. At least 150 countries are reducing tobacco use, but just 56 are on track to reach the voluntary international goal of 30% reduction by 2025. Distinct group data shows Southeast Asia with the highest rate of smoking, 26.5%, followed by Europe, 25.3%, though Europe is projected to have the highest rate by 2030. European women reportedly smoke at twice the rate of the global average. Approximately nine countries are projected to see little change, and six, Congo, Egypt, Indonesia, Jordan, Oman, and Moldova, are expected to see an increase. The WHO credits several governmental policies, including higher taxes on tobacco products and bans on advertising, for the gains made in the efforts to reduce tobacco usage. Thanks, Melissa. Global News brings us Narrative A. This is great news for the health of the world, and it's obvious that countries that have implemented some of the suggestions from the WHO to counter big tobacco are getting results. It's time to start regulating e-cigarettes the same as regular tobacco products and maybe even go as far as to put warning labels on individual products. Health authorities worldwide are winning this battle, but they must not relent. Here's Narrative B from the Jerusalem Post. Although the tobacco industry is pushing against WHO recommendations for reducing global tobacco use, the WHO must also consider other factors that may slow progress. People in countries where there's great trauma and or countries involved in violent conflict might find their populations turning to tobacco for relief. The WHO will need to do more to offer alternatives and financial support to some nations and also consider unique cultural circumstances. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that a country will implement a total civilian ban on the consumption and smoking of tobacco by June 2033. Our final story, a study claims that having more siblings is linked to worse mental health for teens. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Health Day, Sage Journals, Philly Voice, The Guardian, and Ohio State News. 
A study released in the Journal of Family Issues reports that its findings suggest teenagers with more siblings have slightly worse mental health compared to adolescents who had one or zero siblings. Douglas Downey of Ohio State University and his colleagues studied 9,400 eighth-grade students from China and 9,100 Americans of the same age to examine the relationship between the number of siblings and mental health. The U.S. data shows that teens with older siblings or siblings close in age exhibited worsened mental health, with the strongest negative factors correlated to siblings born within one year of each other. Downey said that prior studies showed that having more siblings is associated with some positive effects, so our results were not a given. He added that despite different factors yielding different results, the overall pattern found in both the Chinese and the American sample groups was striking. Downey speculated that more siblings, especially those close in age, compete for their parents' resources. Furthermore, children from higher socioeconomic backgrounds had the best mental health, and in the U.S., families with one or two children fared the best compared to one-child families in China. However, other studies have reported that kindergartners with more siblings had better social skills, and adults from larger families had lower divorce rates. Family sizes in both the U.S. and China have shrunk in recent decades, and experts say more research is needed to determine the relationship between the number of siblings and mental health. Thank you, Scott, for those interesting facts. And here's a narrative A from Medium. There are many reasons that people across developed countries are having fewer children, and this inevitable decline in birth rates brings some positive effects, as this study shows. In addition to the health and economic benefits of smaller families, having fewer children can help the world in its fight against climate change. The fact is that people are starting families much later than they did in the past, and the focus should be on the health and happiness of families, not on their size. And the Claremont Institute brings us Narrative B. People across the Western world, particularly in the U.S., have been misled into believing that having fewer children is a positive development. However, considerable research shows that large and robust families are most conducive to mental and physical health. Low birth rates present an existential crisis, and society must prioritize creating the next generation of happy and healthy children. And the nerds have the final word today from Metaculus, saying there's a 50% chance that China's total fertility rate will be at least 1.1 in 2031. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, January 17th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.